Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for the opportunity for us to be able to sit under the preaching of your word. We recognize that when your word goes out, it does not return void, but it accomplishes that which you purpose. And so, Father, we ask that you accomplish that purpose this day, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. A key moment in Martin Luther's life occurred during a visit to Rome in 1510. He visited Pilate's stairs. Now, it's believed that Christ stood on these stairs in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. And per the practice of Catholics of the day, one could earn merit for themselves or a family member by climbing these stairs on their hands and knees, repeating a prayer, the pater noster, which is the Lord's prayer, at every single step. Now, Catholics believed that if they earned sufficient merit, then they could save either their own soul from purgatory or the soul of a family member. Now, Luther decided to climb these stairs and earn merit to free his grandfather, Heine, from purgatory. When Luther eventually made his ways to the top of these stairs, he said, who knows whether it is so? Who knows if this is true? In other words, who knows if this will actually help my grandfather if climbing up these stairs and reciting these prayers are of no sure help? Then how could Luther be confident that he was right with God? How could he know that he had true faith? Now, sometimes we wonder if we have true faith that saves our souls. We may wonder, do we truly have a relationship with God? And yes, we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. So I'm not talking about eternal security, for if we have believed in Christ and what he has done, then we have a relationship with God. I'm talking about assurance. Sometimes we feel that God is far from us. When we look at our lives, we find little change. We find little love for God. When we read the Bible and open up its pages, we find them stale. Our prayers seem rote. Our love for others has grown cold. So how could we be assured that we have true faith? How do we know that we have a faith that is true? How do we know if we have invited Jesus into our lives as an esteemed guest rather than just leaving him in our living rooms? How do we know that we have true faith? Now, to answer this question, we'll look at a story found in the Gospel of Luke, the story of Zacchaeus. Now, in our sermon series, Meals with Jesus, it has taken us on a tour of various meals that occurs in the Gospel of Luke. We've seen Jesus have meals with tax collectors and Pharisees. We've even seen celebratory meals when something that has been lost has been found. And in the story of Zacchaeus, we'll see an invitation to a meal. When Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' home, we see a life transformed. We see true faith. Now, this story is found in Luke chapter 19. So if you're not there already, please turn there with me. Luke chapter 19. Now, in this passage, we'll see four signs of true faith. Now, these signs are not comprehensive. 
I mean, you may see some of these signs in your life, and all these signs may not manifest themselves all the time. But here we will see four signs of true faith, four pieces of evidence of a genuine conversion, four indications of a true faith. So let's look at the first sign of true faith. True faith seeks out Jesus, that those who have true faith will actually look for him. They will search for him. True faith moves a person to go on a Jesus hunt. True faith seeks out Jesus. And we see this in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus seeks out Jesus. He looks for him. And although Zacchaeus looks for Jesus with his physical eyes, Luke actually highlights his spiritual blindness. And we see this in a few of the details that he provides in the story. So let's look at this. The story first occurs in the city of Jericho. Look at verse 1. It says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. When Jesus drew near to Jericho in the previous passage above in Luke chapter 18, you'll see that Jesus actually encounters a physically blind person. And note the phrase, passing through. The same phrase, passing through, also occurs in the account of the blind man in the preceding verses in Luke chapter 18. That Jesus passes through Jericho just as he passed by the blind man. Now, Jesus uses these two details to connect Zacchaeus with the blind person. And this blind man in Jericho may have been physically blind, but Zacchaeus is also blind as well. He's not blind in the eyes, but he's blind in the spirit. And third, we see this, that Luke repeats the word see to highlight Zacchaeus' desire to see. He uses it twice in the following verses. He doesn't use the verb hear, touch, because he wants to bring attention to Zacchaeus' sight. Look with me at verses 3 through 4. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, his short height prevented him from being able to see over the crowds to catch a glimpse of Jesus. So he runs ahead of the crowd, and as he sees them off in a distance, he knows he needs to gain some altitude. So he has a choice. How do I actually see Jesus? But then a sycamore tree catches his attention. Now, climbing up the tree would give him sufficient altitude to be able to see Jesus, but is it worth it? Because only children climb trees. He's a grown man, after all. And besides, he's wearing this nice, ornate, expensive robe. Purple robes do not come cheap. And besides, his sandals are brand new. It's now or never, though. Do I climb the tree and seem like a child, or do I stay here and not get a glimpse of Jesus? And so Zacchaeus decides to embrace the impropriety of a grown adult and climb that tree just to see Jesus. Now, why does Zacchaeus do so much to just see Jesus pass by? Why does he set aside his dignity as an adult to do such a childish thing just to get a glance? What motivates him to seek out Jesus? Now, the text doesn't 
provide an explicit reason, but Luke provides some clues in the text that kind of help us out. These clues help us to see why Zacchaeus is trying so hard to really see Jesus. So what is the implied reason? The implied reason is this, that Jesus' ministry caused Zacchaeus to seek him out. It is the ministry of Christ that causes Zacchaeus to climb that tree to see him. Maybe Zacchaeus overheard stories of Jesus healing the sick and forgiving sin. Maybe he heard of the accounts of Jesus spending time with tax collectors, and it piqued his attention. Who is this rabbi considered by some the Messiah of Israel that he would be willing to hang out with tax collectors? And we see him throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus makes friends with tax collectors regularly. I mean, he calls Levi, a tax collector, to follow him. He dines with Levi's tax-collecting friends. I mean, Jesus even affirms that tax collectors can enter into the kingdom of God. And so Zacchaeus, being a tax collector himself, when he heard these stories, it probably piqued his interest to see Jesus. Now, remember a thing about tax collectors. People in the first century despise tax collectors more than we actually dislike the Internal Revenue Service when they collect our taxes. I mean, the Roman Empire auctioned off the job of tax collecting to people, so those with resources could obtain a tax collecting post. And the worst thing about tax collectors is how they collected their taxes, how they used their tax collecting powers to take advantage of people. If the Roman Empire levied a 5% tax on textile sales, then a tax collector may actually tax them 10%. And then the tax collector would give Rome the 5% and keep the rest. And the populace hated how tax collectors cheated them, took advantage of them. So it's no surprise that people generally didn't associate with tax collectors. I mean, Zacchaeus, being a tax collector himself, experienced the loneliness. He knew how it felt to not be invited to a neighbor's wedding. He saw how people scowled at him as he passed them in the street. He could watch his kids play alone because no parent would allow their kids to play with a tax-collecting family. Every day, he felt that loneliness. And maybe he regretted that decision to be a tax collector. He regretted the fact that he cheated his own countrymen. And he'd hate to contemplate, what did God think about him? If people didn't want to relate with him, then would God even want to have a relationship with him? And Zacchaeus longed for that relationship. And maybe Jesus could be that person. Maybe Jesus could be that friend. Now, Jesus not only hung out with tax collectors throughout the Gospel of Luke, we also see him say that it is possible for even the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, up to this point, it seems as though Jesus has been condemning the rich. I mean, you have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man spends eternity in hell. And when Jesus asks the rich ruler to give up his possessions to follow him, the rich ruler goes away sad. He's unable to give up his possessions. But in the story of the rich ruler, Jesus says it's possible, there is potential for a wealthy person 
to enter the kingdom of God. Remember the phrase, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so Luke connects the story of Zacchaeus with the story of the rich ruler. And he provides three details to make that connection. Look at verse 2 of chapter 19. It says this, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. First detail, his name. The name Zacchaeus means righteous. Remember when Jesus encounters the rich ruler? The rich ruler declares, I'm righteous because I kept the commandments since my youth. Note the second detail, his job. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He's not a normal tax collector. He rules over other tax collectors. This is the only time chief tax collector actually occurs. And the prefix of the word in Greek is the word arch. That's where we get this idea, archbishop, the bishop who oversees the other bishops. And the arch tax collector oversees the other tax collectors. You had a rich ruler. Here, you have a ruler of tax collectors. And the third detail is the last adjective, was rich. Zacchaeus is wealthy. He wore the newest fashions. He furnished his home with the newest styles. Every meal, highest quality ingredients were used in another connection to the rich ruler. So it prompts you to wonder, while the rich ruler went away from his encounter with Jesus sad, will it be different for Zacchaeus? Maybe Zacchaeus knew this rich ruler who walked away from Jesus. And when he talked to the rich ruler, the rich ruler said, I couldn't do it. I couldn't give up my possessions. I couldn't follow Jesus. And Zacchaeus may have thought to himself, if I had the chance, if I had the opportunity, I would have given up any portion of my possessions to be associated with Jesus. Now, I don't know if that's actually what happened, but I wonder. Because it seems as though it is the ministry of Jesus that probably prompted Zacchaeus to seek Jesus out. He sought Jesus because Jesus would associate with a tax collector. And Jesus taught that the kingdom of God could be extended to the rich. Maybe Zacchaeus had a chance. And he had to find out. He had to find Jesus to see Maybe Jesus could minister to him too. Do we find ourselves seeking Jesus out? I mean, true faith prompts a believer to seek out Jesus. They seek out Jesus because they know that he can minister to them. True faith believes that Jesus is the one who cares for our souls. He's the one who can answer the deepest questions of our soul. He's the one who can change a person's life. That's why we seek him out. That's why we look for him. That's why we cry out to him, because he's our only hope. Jesus ministers to our loneliness because he never will forsake us. Close friends may move to another state or another city for a job. Family members might leave or pass away, and death separates you. But although you may not feel him, you seek Jesus because you remember his words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus ministers to our anxiety because he will never lose control. And so we look and we seek and we search after the one who controls all things. Nothing escapes his oversight. 
whether it be an interview for a job, an interview for a residency, or even a conflict that you're in, that God is in control of it all, and we seek him out. True faith seeks out Jesus because it knows that Jesus alone can minister to our souls. Now, we talked about this first sign of faith. It seeks out Jesus. So let's move on to the second sign. The second sign of true faith is this. True faith senses God's grace. That true faith is aware of how God is working in one's life. They're able to perceive God pouring out his unmerited favor upon them. True faith senses God's grace. And Zacchaeus senses God's grace toward him. When we left Zacchaeus, he climbed up a sycamore tree, and the leaves may have hidden him, and he's hidden behind some branches. But Jesus sees him. Jesus finds Zacchaeus in that tree. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. It's pretty amazing if you think about it. Out of all the crowd at Jericho, Jesus sought out one person. They had never met before, but but Zacchaeus' name was known to Jesus. This is God's grace. God's grace recognizes your name. He knows you, even though you may have never thought of him much in the past. God has thought much about you. And Jesus seeks out Zacchaeus. Now, Jesus not only seeks out Zacchaeus, but Jesus extends friendship to Zacchaeus. Look at the last half of verse 5 again. For I must stay at your house today. Jesus isn't coming by just for a cup of tea. He's not coming to ask for sugar. He's coming to stay. Maybe one night, maybe two nights. But Jesus has decided to dwell with Zacchaeus. And this has a social cost. To stay with a tax collector would mean that you would have a relationship with one. And nobody would ever want to be seen with a tax collector, much less stay at his house. And Jesus decides to pay the social costs. Jesus decides to have a relationship with Zacchaeus. And this, again, is God's grace. That Jesus breaks social norms to join Zacchaeus. And we see that it's not a popular thing by the response of the crowd. Look at verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, Pastor Jason noted last week that the word grumble here is the same word used to describe the wilderness generation. They grumbled against God because they didn't like how God led them through the wilderness. And here, the crowd didn't like how Jesus broke the social norm to spend time with Zacchaeus. The crowd doesn't like God's plan. And to be honest, aren't there times when we don't like who God chooses to save? Aren't there times when we want God to dispense his justice rather than grace to certain people? But if God stuck to the norms of justice, then we would all have been condemned. God is the king. We rebelled against his rule. Rebels don't deserve life. They deserve death. Yet God graciously extends pardon and relationship to us. 
And this is God's grace. It is unmerited favor. And Zacchaeus senses God's grace, and it causes him to hurry down the tree and invite Jesus to be his guest. We see this in verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Do you sense God's grace in your life? Because those with true faith recognize and see how God extends grace to them regularly. Do we sense, do we feel, do we see it? Are we aware of God showing us that favor? God may extend grace through his word. You read his word, and the truth there encourages you. It reminds you of the hope that you have in Christ. Maybe God extends grace to you through other believers, that through this period of feeling down or in trouble, other believers may reach out to you. They may send you a text. They may even ask you out for coffee. They may even be in your small group thinking about you, praying for you. And that these things are also God's grace because they remind you you're not alone. So true faith senses is aware of God's grace. And those with true faith see how he pours out his favor upon them. And although these glimpses of God's grace may be few, those glimpses encourage us. They remind us that we have a relationship with God. Let's move on to the third sign. True faith changes you. True faith prompts you to turn from the old way of doing things to God's ways. True faith compels you to put off the old self and to put on the new self in Christ. It changes the way that you think, the way that you feel, the way that you speak. True faith transforms you. And we see a change in Zacchaeus. God's grace changes him. Let's look at the change. It's in verse 8. Let's read it together. Verse 8 says this, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And it continues in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Let's look some, at some of the details of this text. Note Zacchaeus's posture. He stands. Now, one might ask Luke, well, Luke, why did you depict Zacchaeus as standing? Because if you remember in the Gospel of Luke, there is another story of a tax collector standing. The parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And Luke may be drawing comparison to Zacchaeus and this tax collector in this parable. Because I, for the longest time, thought Zacchaeus may have stood, looked up at Jesus, and made his comments. But I wonder now if Zacchaeus, like that tax collector in the parable, is actually unable to look up. He's looking at his feet. He's looking at the ground. And that when he says he will give to the poor and repay those who he has defrauded, it shows contrition. It shows repentance. Let's look at Zacchaeus' actions. First, Zacchaeus gives half of his possessions to the poor. Now, in the first century, Jews believed that it was generous for someone to give 20% of their possessions to the poor. But in this case, in this particular circumstance, 
Zacchaeus gives 50% of his possession. It goes way beyond the normal amount. And note to whom the possessions go. It goes to the poor, the same people that Jesus came to care for. And it seems as though Zacchaeus adopts the same heart. And second, we see that Zacchaeus repays those whom he has cheated. If the Roman Empire ever did an audit on Zacchaeus' books and discovered that Zacchaeus cheated, then he would actually have to make a fourfold restitution. If Zacchaeus forgot to pay Rome one denarius that month, and Rome found out, he would have to repay with four. And he applies the same penalty on himself when he repays those whom he has defrauded. He makes proper restitution for past wrongs. So unlike that rich ruler before him, Zacchaeus experiences a transformation. He gives up his possessions. He repays those whom he has defrauded. And Jesus declares that salvation has come on Zacchaeus. Look at verse 9 again. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And the phrase son of Abraham is not referring to an ethnicity, the Jews. It also describes those who have been saved by faith in God. Jesus says that because Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham, it is then followed by a declaration of salvation. That Zacchaeus' salvation precedes the giving away of his possessions and repayment of those whom he has defrauded. That transformation occurs because of grace through faith, and this leads to transformation. Now, if it is a sign that God's grace changes us, then we have to examine our works. And Paul writes to the Philippians in his letter, he encourages them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in them. So we have to look for change. Do we see change in our lives? Does faith in God change us? Does God's grace transform us? Now the spiritual word that we use for change is repentance. The Greek word for repentance refers to the changing of one's mind. As believers, we repent from a life ruled by sin to a life ruled by God. That occurs at the moment of conversion. But it also occurs regularly as we continue to grow in our faith. That we find ourselves confessing and repenting and turning from our sins regularly. Now for some of us, this change may be big. We once struggled with sexual purity, but belief in the gospel has caused you to leave those sexually immoral behaviors behind. Prior to faith in Christ, you struggled with alcoholism. But by the grace of God, he transformed you, and you left the bottle behind. And for some of us, the change may be more subtle. Before, you were unaware that you spoke harshly to your spouse, but after your conversion, you begin to believe, wow, I don't really choose nice words to speak to my spouse. Or others of you may discover that, wow, I'm spending too much time in front of a screen, and I need to do something more God-glorifying with my time. It may also affect your thinking, that you may think about, hear certain explanations for ethics, but you pause and you begin to think, how does what I hear reconcile with what God's Word says? And all of this is God's grace. Now let me talk specifically about two reasons why God's grace will change your view of sin. First, God's grace changes your view of sin because of the great cost that was paid for it. You realize that your sin cost the life 
of God's Son. And this prompts you to grieve over sin. Do you grieve knowing that you spoke in a passive-aggressive way to communicate your displeasure maybe with the decision you made? Do you grieve that you desire to give someone a silent treatment to give them some taste of retribution, of vengeance? That grief comes. You grieve when you find yourself sinning because you realize God paid the cost of my sin through his son. Now, the second way that God's grace changes your view of sin is that God's grace changes your view of yourself because forgiveness is free. We discover when we have a relationship with Jesus that we are more messed up than we realize. But in Christ, we discover that we are more accepted than we deserve. It should give us the freedom to be able to confess our sins freely to God, and it should free us to also ask others for forgiveness, especially when we've wronged them. And we realize we are sinners saved by grace. Now I want to add a word of warning here. If you believe that God's grace means you don't have to change, then it shows that you probably don't understand grace well. If you believe that being a follower of Christ means that you can sin because God will forgive you, then you fail to understand the cost that was paid to redeem you. You have cheapened God's grace. True faith changes you. That's the third sign. So let's move on to the last sign. True faith believes God's heart for the lost. That one who has true faith understands that God's desire is to save those who are far from him. He desires for people to come to saving knowledge of his son. God desires for the lost to be found. He wishes for those who are wayward to come home. He wants those who are in darkness to return to the light. And true faith believes God's heart is for the lost. And Jesus declares his heart for the lost in this last verse, in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, there are two things I want us to think about when it comes to God's heart for the lost. First, if we think that Jesus had a heart to condemn, then Jesus would not have come. If Jesus wanted people to experience God's wrath, then he would never have left his heavenly home. And in this case, he would never have entered into Jericho to seek Zacchaeus. After all, Zacchaeus deserved hell for the people he had cheated. But that's not God's heart. That's not his desire. Jesus desires for people to be saved. Now, there's another thing I want us to think about. We oftentimes think that we found Jesus. We discovered the gospel. But when we find Jesus, we discover that he's been seeking us all along. If we look back to the events leading up to our conversion, then we realize that God has orchestrated all those various events of our life so that we would discover him. Now, I can't share with you how God orchestrated the events of your life leading up to conversion, but I can see how he did it in mine. I mean, he led cousins of mine to faith in Christ. He gave my cousins an opportunity to build a deep relationship with me. He helped me realize how lost I was in my sin. And he somehow prompted my family to gather on an Easter to have dinner together. And then he directs me to talk to my cousin, and she shares with me 
about Jesus Christ for the first time. Then he promised my cousin to give me my very first Bible. And he gave me a desire to actually read through this Bible. And then he leads my cousin to bring me and my brother to church. And then he appoints my Sunday school teacher to share the gospel with me. And then he helps my mind piece together all the elements of the gospel. And then there's a light bulb moment to decide to place my faith in Christ. I may say that I sought God, but God had sought me all along. And when you look back at the events leading up to your conversion, I'm sure that you'll see the same things. Do you believe in God's heart for the lost? Do we believe that God searches for those who are wayward? And Jesus is faithful to find you. If you've lost your way, if you've walked away from him, if you've had your doubts, Jesus will find you. He will create such circumstances in your life that you will cry out to him for help. And you'll discover at that moment that Jesus had been there all along. And Jesus is also pursuing those who have not yet found him. It may be the unbelieving family member, a parent, a brother, a sister, uncle, or cousin. It might be a friend. And God is pursuing them. He's looking for them to respond to his pursuit. He's waiting for them to accept the invitation to believe. And a person with true faith believes that God sent his son not to condemn people, but to save them. And the first thought of a believer is not, you're destined to hell. The question is, you were meant for heaven. Why do you choose hell? Because Jesus is seeking you. So let's review the four signs of faith. True faith seeks out Jesus. True faith senses God's grace. True faith changes you. And true faith believes God's heart for the lost. Martin Luther eventually discovered true faith. After his trip to Rome, his supervisor assigned him to teach the Bible at a university. This prompted a study in the book of Psalms and Romans. And as he studied, he discovered faith, justification by faith. And it's no wonder that when Luther heard about the sale of indulgences at Wittenberg to purchase people's souls from hell, it prompted him to oppose the sale of these indulgences by nailing theses on the door of Wittenberg Castle. And it's this document on the door of Wittenberg Castle, nailed there on October 31st, 1517, that eventually sparked the Protestant Reformation. True faith. And may we, as followers of Christ, find assurance of God when we see the signs of true faith in us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you have called us into a relationship with your Son. And oftentimes, we feel far from him. We feel that he is distant. But we pray that your Spirit would help to encourage us when we see signs of true faith in our lives to remember that you indeed are pursuing us and that you are with us, and that you will lead us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.